Hello, and welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing presented by Public Health Law Watch, an initiative of the George Consortium in association with the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University and the Center for Health, Law, Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. My name is Katie Michael, and I'm a senior attorney at Change Lab Solutions. Change Lab Solutions is a law and policy organization that's located in Oakland, California. We're a national organization that advances equitable laws and policies to ensure healthy lives for all. We prioritize communities whose residents are at highest risk of poor health. Joining me today is Elizabeth Tobin-Tyler, who is Associate Professor of Family Medicine at the Alpert Medical School of Brown University and Associate Professor of Health Services, Policy, and Practice at Brown School of Public Health. She teaches and writes in the areas of health justice health policy, and public health law and ethics. We're also joined by my colleague, Jessica Breslin, an attorney at Change Lab Solutions who works on law and policy related to economic justice, health equity, tobacco, and healthy communities. So welcome, Liz and Jessica. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, today, we're going to talk about how the inequitable enforcement or lack of enforcement of public health laws can create or exacerbate health inequities. We'll in explore inequitable enforcement generally, and then we'll hone in on how we're seeing these concepts play out in the context of COVID-19. We'll also outline some options that government officials should consider to promote more equitable outcomes, both during the pandemic and in the long term. So before we dive into the details, I want to take a minute to lay some groundwork for our discussion. In particular, what do we mean when we say inequitable or equitable enforcement? To define these terms, let's take a step back and recognize that there is a significant gap between the promise of our laws and people's lived experiences. This gap exists in part because laws designed to keep people safe and healthy are often not enforced, and when they are, are not enforced equitably in a way that promotes health and well-being for the most marginalized. As Liz and Jessica will discuss, inequitable enforcement harms public health, both through over-enforcement, in which some communities are disproportionately affected by punitive enforcement approaches, and through under enforcement, in which some communities experience inconsistent enforcement of protective public health laws. In contrast, equitable enforcement ensures compliance with the law while considering and minimizing harms to underserved communities. An equitable enforcement approach considers equity at the level of the public entity's overall strategy, as well as at the level of individual enforcement action. It also considers equity at all stages of enforcement, from determining when to enforce a law and against whom to deciding which enforcement tools to use. At Change Lab Solutions, we believe that equitable enforcement can and should be a tool to ensure public health laws have their intended effect. The COVID-19 pandemic highlights the importance of equitable enforcement as a cornerstone of governmental response, both as a tool to minimize harms related to enforcement of emergency measures like stay-at-home orders, and as a tool to promote economic justice, health, and safety during the recovery period ahead. I also want to acknowledge that inequitable enforcement is at the top of mind for me and likely for many listeners as we're all processing grief and outrage over the death of George Floyd in police custody in Minneapolis just last week. Although police violence will not be the only or the primary focus of our discussion today, many of the themes and solutions we'll discuss are certainly related to that topic. As our nation faces a public health crisis, an economic crisis, and the threat of 
of police violence, all of which are disproportionately impacting people of color. Equitable enforcement of public health laws is, in my view, more important now than ever. So now that we have that general framework, let's dive into some specifics, looking first at issues related to under-enforcement and then moving on to over-enforcement. So Liz, um, what do we mean when we say under-enforcement of public health laws and how can under-enforcement adversely impact health? Thanks, Katie. That was a, a great introduction. Um, you know, when we think about public health laws, uh, they are designed to reduce the risk of exposure for individuals and communities um, to prevent injury, illness, and death. And so when we think about those laws being under-enforced, um, that's when we have protective public health laws on the books, um, but the, those with enforcement authority fail to enforce them, um, and we see consequential health harms. So I think there, there are several reasons why public health laws often go under-enforced, um, particularly in low-income communities of color. And I'd like to note, we're going to talk about over-enforcement, but as you noted, um, on most many people's minds right now uh, is the over-enforcement of criminal laws in communities of color. Um, but I think we also have to take a step back and recognize that there, for many years, um, has been almost an invisible problem of under-enforcement of protective health laws in communities of color. So in communities with residents who lack political power, there are few consequences for officials who fail to enforce protective health laws. There's a great deal of discretion um, that public health agency officials have, but also other uh, um, public officials that are responsible for enforcement of particular laws to protect the health. And oftentimes, um, these officials are not responsive to complaints um, that come directly from the community. Uh, and part of that, as I said, is because of a lack of political power in those communities. So when we think about low-income communities of color, this may be the case. Um, another is that, that there are just a, uh, there's a lack of resources for enforcement of public health laws. Um, so this is not to put all of the blame on the government actors responsible for enforcement, um, but it often means that those officials, um, because they don't have uh, the resource that they, resources that they need, um, can't take a comprehensive enforcement strategy. There's an enormous amount of discretion in where laws are enforced and in which communities, and if it's a, if there are communities that lack the ability to hold officials accountable, um, oftentimes those resources go to communities that have more ability to hold them accountable. So the failure to enforce public health laws, such as environmental laws and housing codes, um, can really have a devastating effect on the health of communities, and we see this um, in in uh, statistics about um, poor health outcomes and particularly health disparities. So examples of higher rates of asthma, lead poisoning, injury, particularly in low-income communities of color. Uh, and the frustrating part about this is that the protective laws, um, if enforced, could mean that we could, many of these um, injuries and illnesses could be prevented. Great. Thanks, Liz. Um, so I know you just mentioned some general examples, but what are some specific or key examples of how we've uh, seen these under-enforcement issues play out historically? So we don't have to look very hard <laughs> to find examples of under-enforcement of protective public health laws, particularly in low-income communities of color. Um, so, you know, uh, as we saw in Flint, Michigan, um, the devastating effects of the failure to enforce environmental public health uh, protection laws, really at all levels of government, from the local to the state to the federal, um, is, a, is a primary example of, uh, you know, a city where the water source was contaminated by lead, um, and it took months um, for there to be a response and for there to be enforcement of laws that were on the books to protect 
protect people from, um, from that kind of public health crisis. So I think one theme that we see in under-enforcement um, is often confusion and, and finger-pointing among uh, government agency officials regarding who's responsible for um, the enforcement of public health laws. Uh, we definitely saw this in Flint with officials kind of laying blame um, for the failure to enforce at one another <laughs> one another's feet. Um, the other is, I think, you know, the other issue is that with wide discretion, uh, a lot of times laws go in, uh, unenforced in certain neighborhoods such as, or areas such as Flint. Um, it was clear really in Flint that there was, a, as I mentioned earlier, kind of an indifference to the, the um, complaints coming from the community, from people um, letting officials know what was happening. Uh, and again, I think this stemmed from a lack of accountability to that community. Um, in my own work, I've also seen uh, this similar problems arise with the enforcement of housing codes and often seeing that uh, government officials are not responsive to tenant complaints, uh, particularly coming from low-income communities about unsafe housing conditions. Um, but once advocates get involved, uh, there's often a different kind of response. So I think this, again, sort of points to um, the discretionary aspect of enforcement of public health laws and the need, need for stronger accountability um, and also targeting of resources to the communities that are underserved in terms of uh, um, having laws enforced on their behalf. So moving to today, um, how are we seeing issues with under-enforcement play out in the context of COVID-19? Yeah, so co so COVID-19 has really compounded um, some of these issues with under-enforcement, um, again, leaving low-income communities vulnerable really to additional health threats um, beyond the virus. And as we know, um, we, as we're seeing uh, across the country that particularly African-Americans and um, Latinos and other vulnerable, vulnerable groups are being hit harder by the COVID virus. And so when we think about what I mentioned earlier about sort of this almost invisible issue of, of under-enforcement that has led to health disparities for many, many years, we see within this context of the virus some of the same concerns and actually it, um, some of these problems of under-enforcement being exacerbated. So in some jurisdictions, um, such as Los, Los Angeles, they uh, suspended their housing code enforcement uh, during this time to protect uh, inspectors and tenants um, from exposure to the virus. But of course, what this means is that, that, that some tenants are left with no protection when it comes to some of the exposures in housing, um, such as mold or pests or other unsafe conditions. And obviously, people are staying home more. And so they're even more exposed to those kinds of um, conditions in their home. And then if they don't have the ability to call uh, housing code enforcement, have an inspection done and have something done about that, uh, they're at incre increased risks um, for asthma and other types of and lead poisoning and other types of um, housing related health problems. And of course, you have to also remember that many of these things such as asthma comorbidities can exacerbate COVID-19. So it's really a kind of compounded effect that we have to be concerned about. And so thinking about solutions, um, as we move from crisis response to long-term recovery, what are some strategies to ensure more consistent enforcement of protective public health laws? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, if the virus is sort of underscored one thing, it's that we need public health preparedness. This doesn't just extend to sort of current or future 
pandemics, it's really shown us that we have that we need to support infrastructure to better protect public health proactively and consistently. Um, and you know, I think if there's any silver lining from the pandemic, it's that we're actually innovating in terms of um, technology and ways of addressing problems um, differently than we have before. So there there actually could be an opportunity here. Um, and I'll just use the housing code enforcement as an example. You know, one thing that that localities are beginning to do is to develop new protocols, expanding their capacity to do virtual housing inspections. Um, you know, uh, this could just expand resources and opportunities to, to be able to identify serious housing conditions and problems that are affecting health and safety. Um, there may be ways for, for them to also take online complaints and make that system easier so that tenants, so that there's more uh, greater responsiveness to tenant complaints. Um, but again, I think what's most important is that we, we need to be thinking about infrastructure and how we approach enforcement proactively. And that really has to do with um, targeting our resources to the most effective communities. Uh, and we know that communities um, that are most likely to be exposed to environmental toxins or to lead paint or to other housing conditions um, or any really any public health harm, um, we know where those, we know which communities those are. Uh, and so I think targeting of resources to enforcement in those communities is critical. Um, and I think if we do this, uh, we're going to see a reduction in the disparate, not only the disparate enforcement, but um, health disparities uh, that we've seen for in so many communities for so long. Great. Um, thank you, Liz, for that summary of how inequitable under-enforcement can impact health um, and how we can solve some of these problems during the COVID response and recovery. Now, um, turning to you, Jessica, to discuss um, issues related to over-enforcement. Um, can you describe what we mean when we say over-enforcement of public health laws um, and what are some examples of how this issue can impact health? Thanks, Katie. Um, and first, I just want to echo what you said about over-enforcement and, and uh, interaction with the police being on the top of our minds and something we really want to be thinking through now and, and always. Over-enforcement in the context of public health is when these laws that are designed to protect the health of the public are either enforced more frequently or more strictly in the communities that they're designed to protect. So being enforced more frequently in communities of color and in low-income communities in a way that actually has um, a more harmful effect on their health um, by exposing them to additional harm or by bringing them into contact with inequitable systems that may cause greater harm like the criminal justice system or these systems of uh, civil fines and things like that. Um, or for, It also means that when we're thinking about over-enforcement and the way it interacts with under-enforcement, it may be targeting individuals rather than targeting the upstream factors and actors who actually have the power to make change. So in addition to um, more negatively impacting the people it's trying to affect, it's not actually being as effective in protecting the health or accomplishing the public health goals that you're you're trying to address. Um, and again, one of in the most extreme example where you're trying to enforce a public health law that leads to police involvement that can lead to death, but there's also um, you know more uh, common occurrences or lower lower level things where let's say you receive a fine um, and having to pay that fine makes you food insecure or having to pay that fine makes it less likely that you're going to be able to pay rent. So then in addition to dealing with the fine, you're also dealing with the potential health harms of unstable housing or being food insecure. Um, and so we really want to be thinking through what the impacts of our enforcement and are we accomplishing the goals that the public health laws 
laws are intended um, to accomplish. Thanks. Um, and so I'll ask the same questions that I asked to Liz, just to walk through this issue step by step. Um, how have we seen um, over enforcement play out historically? And can you provide a few uh, key examples? Sure. Um, like I, I was saying before, historically, we have seen over enforcement where um, people in the most vulnerable communities are both more likely to be targeted for this type of enforcement and then are more negatively impacted by it. Um, so for ex just to walk through a few examples when we're thinking about fines and fees as a way of um, enforcing public health laws. So if you think about just a simple jaywalking law is designed to protect your health and the health of the public so that you're not hit by a car while you're crossing the street. Um, and let's say that you do that because you're late for work or you're running across the street and you get a ticket that for $50 that you can't pay. Um, and then it, because you can't pay, there's a graduated fine scheme that makes it so that then you get a bigger fine. Um, and so you have these increasing amount of bills, which may um, <coughs> put you more in contact with the court system. Um, and sometimes as a consequence of getting these fines, they might suspend your license if you're not paying for them, which also affects might affect your ability to get to work um, or other things that you need. Or let's say sometimes when you're not paying these fines, it's not just a suspension of your license. Uh, it can be that you get a, a notice to appear in court for failure to pay. And then if you don't show up to that court appearance for whatever reason, you know, maybe you have work, maybe you can't get there, um, then you there's an, a warrant out for your arrest. So you take the, what started as a simple law to protect you from getting hit by a car while you cross the street um, has then turned into, I have an increasing amount of fines and I can't pay my bills or I have an increasing amount of fines and my license gonna be, is going to be suspended or I have an increasing amount of fines and now I have a, a notice to appear in court and I might have criminal justice involvement. Um, and obviously, in, uh, what we, for what we've seen from research, um, when poor people and people of color are coming into contact with criminal justice system, um, there's the potential for increased and exacerbated health harms and all of these pressures can combine together. Um, another example um, is if we're looking at uh, the tobacco industry, um, many states and uh, local governments have laws that um, prohibit uh, youth from purchasing, using, or possessing tobacco products. Um, and it can be a misdemeanor fine or a misdemeanor if they are caught with smoking smoking cigarettes. Um, so we're looking at, we're, these laws are trying to protect kids from the negative effects of tobacco harms. But we're also, if we're thinking about um, kids in, in low income and community, communities of color or in rural communities, we know from research that these communities are heavily targeted by the tobacco industry, which leads to increased use and initiation of tobacco products. Um, and But instead of enforcing against the retailers or the tobacco industry who's targeting these kids, all of a sudden you have a kid who's smoking a cigarette because of this um, targeting, and then they uh, get, let's say, get a misdemeanor charge for having a cigarette, and now they're involved with the juvenile justice system. Or if let's even say if it's, a, if it's just a school problem, let's say you get caught smoking at school, and now you're involved with the school discipline system. And we know from research that the school discipline system and the juvenile justice systems are more likely to target and have a negative impact on kids of color. So we're looking at this law that was designed to help the kids protect them from the tobacco industry. But as a result of the 
over enforcement of this um, pur- purchase use and possession law, they uh, the kid is now exposed to additional harms through school disciplinary system or through the juvenile justice system, um, while not being particularly effective in addressing upstream causes of these. Thanks, Jessica, for those really tangible examples um, that made the issues really real. How are we seeing these concepts and issues play out today in the context of COVID? Yeah, I think um, like with under enforcement, it's really um, shining a light and amplifying existing problems. I think one of the biggest ways that we're seeing this play out during the current crisis um, is the enforcement of the shelter in place and the social distancing orders. Um, These are orders that are designed to protect the public, prevent the spread of the spread of the virus, but we're seeing in the way that they're enforced, the data that started to come out that is really striking in in how they're being enforced. So some data that's come out of New York uh, recently of the 125 people who were arrested over the shelter related to the shelter in place orders, um, 113 were Black or Hispanic, um, which is a little over 90%. Um, Or if we're looking at um, same the data out of New York uh, of the 374 summons from March, um, the middle of March, the beginning of the May, uh, the vast majority, around 300, were given to Black or Hispanic people. So we're seeing the way that that uh, the shelter in place um, orders are being forced. We're seeing the same kind of an over enforcement where the people that are most likely to be targeted by by these the, this enforcement um, are people poor people and people in communities of color. Um, I th- one of the other things that we've seen pop up uh, is um, stacking of charges. So whether or not someone, regardless of what someone's being arrested for, they're going to uh, add the additional charge of violating the shelter in place order, even though it's not related at all. And because of that, um, the additional charge can either add a misdemeanor that wasn't there or increase the fine, which can increase the negative impact on you. Um, For example, in Monroe Monroe County, Indiana, there was a man who was arrested for driving under the influence. Um, But in addition to that, they were also cited for violating the shelter-in-place order. Um, And that additional, that add-on charge can makes the fine could go up another $1,000 and can add another six months in jail. So we're seeing these things stacked on top of each other, even if that wasn't the original intent. Um, And then also thinking about uh, strict enforcement of laws. One of the ways over enforcement occurs is if uh, you are enforcing um, a law regardless of the circumstances. So we're still seeing uh, homeless encampment sweeps and and the uh, enforcement of, you know, not sleeping in park laws that prevent sleeping in parks and things like that, regardless of the situation and whether uh, some of some data has shown that the continuing of the sweeps can actually increase the exposure or the spread of the virus. Um, so we're seeing it pop up in the same ways and, and targeting the same communities. Thanks, Jessica. Um, so moving forward, um, what are some strategies to help ensure that laws are not disproportionately or inequitably enfor- over-enforced? I, th- I think um, in the immediate, there's a lot, a lot of things that you can do. And one of the most important things is thinking about the designation of who is enforcing the laws. Um, some, When you're looking at the enforcement of the shelter-in-place orders, there's some areas where uh, law enforcement is the primary um, enforcement body for these orders. Um, but then there's other areas where there's more involvement with the public health officers to enforce these orders that is more done in 
in a more uh, community engagement and education way that might mitigate the harms that would come from certain types of enforcement bodies. So we have communities now and going forward or whenever you're developing an enforcement policy, you want to be very intentional about the enforcement bodies that you're designating and, and how um, those can be approached. Um, another thing that I think is both important in the short term and the long term is thinking about um, what we call guardrails for discretion. So Liz mentioned a lot about the discretion and whether to enforce these protective laws, but there's also a lot of discretion um, in, in how these more individually targeted laws against individuals are enforced. Thinking about um, if you are, if someone is not following the face covering order, um, are are you automatically, does the enforcement body know, like, are we automatically giving a fine for that? Are we automatically arresting for that? Or is there some sort of guidance for how to engage to educate about the face covering, maybe offer a mask, things like that. So um, making sure that we're training the enforcement officers and also providing them with the guidance um, that they need when discretion is involved, which it um, usually is. Um, and then thinking about um, ongoing training, making sure that there's not just the initial training of enforcement um, bodies, but there's ongoing and updated training. Um, thinking about uh, funding and evaluation and analysis of your enforcement body. So, you know, if the data, data starts coming out like the Stark data in uh, New York, how are you adjusting your enforcement approach to respond to that um, and making sure that you're evaluating your enforcement, that it's effective, and then incorporating the necessary changes and adjustments to make it more effective. Um, and then also in making sure that the impacted communities are engaged and involved in the enforcement process. Um, communities know themselves best and they might have keen insight onto how to best enforce a policy within um, within their community and also be able to flag potential problems or explain what's going on on the ground. Um, and then also really considering uh, graduated enforcement and non-punitive alternatives um, when thinking about uh, how you're going to enforce these policies. Is it really necessary to include criminal involvement or, or involve the criminal justice system? Is that a last resort? Things like that. Great. Thank you both so much. Um, um, given us a lot to think about, um, and it's really helpful to have these examples of solutions, some of which are being implemented now in the context of COVID response, um, and those can be models for us moving forward. Um, so this concludes our briefing on equitable enforcement. Uh, before we close out, I wanted to flag that Change Lab Solutions has been working over the last year or so to develop a guide on equitable enforcement for policymakers. The guide will be published later this month and will be available on our website at changelabsolutions.org forward slash good dash governance. You can also see our COVID-19 online resource page and blog series at changelabsolutions.org forward slash COVID-19 dash response dash recovery. With that, thanks so much to Jessica and Liz and to everyone listening. Briefings will be posted at noon every Tuesday and Thursday, and you can find them on the Public Health Law Watch YouTube channel or posted on Twitter at PHLawWatch hashtag COVID Law Briefing. The shows are also archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twihl.com. The COVID-19 19 law and policy briefings are produced by Faith Kellick and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe.